and so many people. It's actually two volumes. And the first volume he wrote, and he waited. He said, if enough people are impacted by my story, then I'll write the second volume. And they were. And he wrote the second volume, but, but we are. That's, that's what testimony does. It, it breeds faith in us, and it breeds... It, it, it brings a resolve to our lives to live for Christ more faithfully. And that's what we desire when we ask for testimony. So please don't, don't be proud and don't withhold testimonies because we, we all need them for the encouragement of the body to build the body of Christ. If you would, please open to Mark chapter 8. Oh, I'm sorry. Kids, you are dismissed. Thanks for being so patient. Have a wonderful time with Uncle Ray. Tiger, am I good to go? Great. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And Jesus, he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Father, we ask for your presence to be thick among us this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come inhabit our hearts, inhabit our minds capture us and stir us for the effect of the gospel. Particularly, God, we ask for the fathers to be stirred for their own families by your grace and your mercy. We love you, Lord. Amen. Jack Lucas was a Marine in World War II. And he has a very interesting story that I'll read quite quickly. Jack fast-talked his way into the Marines at 14, fooling the recruits with his muscled physique. Assigned to drive a truck in Hawaii, he'd grown frustrated. He wanted to fight. He stowed away on a transport out of Honolulu, surviving on food passed along to him by sympathetic sympathetic leatherbacks on board. He landed on on D-Day at Iwo Jima without a rifle. He grabbed one lying on the beach and fought his way inland. Now on D plus one, Jack and three comrades were crawling through a trench when eight Japanese sprang in front of them. Jack shot one of them through the head. Then his rifle jammed. As he struggled with it, a grenade landed at his feet. He yelled a warning to the others and rammed the grenade into the soft ash. Immediately, another rolled in. Jack Lucas, 17, fell on both grenades. Luke, you're going to die, he remembered thinking. Aboard the hospital ship Samaritan, the doctors could scarcely believe it. He endured 21 reconstructive operations and became the nation's youngest Medal of Honor winner. 
the only high school freshman to receive it. We, we, we are sometimes used to living for causes. And we find in the story of Jack Lucas, a man who, he lived for a cause, 14 years old, knew something of patriotism and, and living for the welfare of the country, so much so that he would lie his way into the military where he wasn't supposed to be, and then at the age of 17, sacrifice his own life to save the ones that he was fighting with. You know, I have been a part of youth ministry. Uh, last month began was my 10th year, marked my 10th year being involved with youth ministry and children's ministry. And I have a growing concern for the youth of our country. I really have a growing concern because I don't find 14-year-olds that even want to be uncomfortable with anything in their life. And, and there, there was a patriotism of World War II where you knew that's what you did. You went to fight for your country and people were eager to go do that. And they were eager to come and say, we want to fight, we want to serve our country. And you know, there, there actually has been a loss of, of even John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech when he gave the, the, the challenge, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Where that sounded and was very inspiring for that generation that heard it, I think the antithesis of what he was actually saying has occurred with today's teenagers. Because in my years, I have found, and, and now worse than ever, as I go to Grace King and interact with those students, I find that they don't live for anything outside of their own comfort and pleasure. It was interesting, after Katrina, when everybody kind of around this area, we all rallied together, we all had a sense of being a part of seeing something happen, one for the city, but also for the gospel in this city. I remember one day I was speaking at Grace King and asked them, are you all ready for the Katrina thing to be over with? And everybody quit talking about it. And they all almost simultaneously said, oh yeah, please. They, were, they weren't thinking the right way. But I, my concern grows because this is going to make for a very interesting country in 20 or 30 years. When all the teenagers of today are leading this country, it will be very interesting. But they're, because they're, they're, with this particular generation, Bill Gates calls this, everybody born from about 1982 till whenever, because it continues to be more this way. He calls this generation, Generation E, for electronic, because they've grown up with electronics. And all the parents in the room know when you have a problem with a computer, who do you call? Your teenage son or daughter. I've done that countless times. Katie, can you help me? I, I, oh, sure. Navigates through. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That's exactly where I wanted to be. It's amazing the sense of, I mean, my generation, we were cool teenagers if we knew how to program the clock on the VCR. I'm savvy now. Watch out. It's not blinking anymore. But actually, I, I would actually use that E to not just be the generation of electronics, but the generation of entertainment. Because we have, we have kids that grow up to be entertained, not to sacrifice, not to live for something outside of themselves, but to look inwardly to figure out how to please themselves. Teens interpret life very, very differently. They usually do it through the lens of their immediate pleasure and comfort. 
postmodern effect on teens is that they seek no purpose whatsoever, it seems. Now, this is the world outside of themselves. You know, we had in previous generations, there were rallying points and unifying effects that came to generations. The generation that, that fought in World War II, there was a rallying point. Everybody, even those, the same ones that went to, fought, to fight, were the ones that lived through the Depression. So even through those two common experiences, there was a rallying effect of, of those that lived through that generation. And then they had the baby boom, and we had all these kids that now came the late 70s or late 60s, early 70s, and they just wanted to rebel against every form of, of authority distrust everywhere but even in that there was almost a unifying effect for that generation the unifying effect was rebel against everything don't trust anybody so these generations have these and that's why we have the split in the vietnam conflict we have we have those that were the supporters those with the anti-war movement but everybody had somewhat of a unifying effect though it began to be disjointed because in those late 60s and early 70s there was such a desire for self-consumption that really the rebel against authority was, no, I want what I want when I want it right now. And it's got an effect on, it had the effect then on Generation X, who received its name because they were just sitting around not living for anything. And so they, you're not living for anything, you just have an X on you. Well, I think we began to see the fruits in Generation X, we began to see the fruits of the self-consumption, self-absorption that was the rallying cry for the late 60s and into the 70s. And now we have the Generation E that I believe truly is the fruit of that self-consumption. Because kids, you know that. Kids don't have to learn self-consumption. We just, the world has just been able to free them in it, to operate in it for years and years and years and years into adulthood, and that's what's going to make for a very interesting country. But let's bring it back to our church. How is our church going to respond? When we, uh, when we think about our own children in this church, when we think about fathers, when we think about our own kids and the legacy that we are going to leave. Jo- Jack Lucas left a legacy. And it was something that, that, that inspires us and it's something that captures something in us. But you know, though patriotism is a noble cause, it's not the highest cause. The gospel is the highest cause for our lives. George Barna, several, a few years ago, I think it was back in 2003 or 2004, did a survey on, uh, of college students. And he surveyed the college students who had grown up in church youth groups. And he actually, the question was, do you, were, you a part of, were you an active part of your church youth group in high school? And then right now, do you attend church? He found only 20% of those surveyed attended church in college who came from active youth group participation. Now, I, I, we're, we're graced in that that's not our percentage, which we are, we're appreciative of God's mercy that we don't fall into that percentage rate. But um, I think it speaks of the attack and the self-consumption when, when we begin to think for ourselves, we outsmart ourselves. The legacy that we desire to leave, and this comes from where the scriptures that we read in Mark, We want to leave a legacy of the gospel. When Jesus said, if you wish to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. And whoever would lose his, whoever would lose his life will save it. Lose his life for the sake of my name and the gospel. 
Psalm 145, 4 says, One generation shall commend your acts to another and shall declare your praise. The question for us, and specifically for the fathers, is what legacy are you leaving your kids? Are you leaving a legacy of self-consumption? Or are you commending the works of God to the generation coming after you? We need to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. Our vision in this church, our vision for the church, our vision for the family, youth ministry, children's ministry, is to shout out the greatness and glory of the gospel of Jesus, that our kids are inspired to live a life worthy of that gospel. Now here's the kicker. Though we might draw a specific application to fathers this morning, there are no bystanders in this commission. There's nobody, if you call this church your home, there is nobody that would, would be able to stand on the side and not provide a living example of what it means to live for the sake of the gospel. That's our vision that we will continue to promote that. We will continue to do it because we want to give kids this reality. Jesus is cool and he's worth living for. Don't listen to the lie of the world. Don't listen to the, the, the self-consuming aspect of the world. Don't li- Jesus is the one to live for. He's worth it. He's worth it all. You know, God gives us means, a means of grace in accomplishing, uh, just getting, getting the focus off of ourselves and on to living for the cause of the gospel. And I believe he, for me, this is dear to my heart, for me, he's done that with biography. There, there's something about biography. It's a testimony. We're hearing testimony of the glory of God applied and effective in someone's life. And we want that and desire that we should want that and desire that for our own lives. So guess what? Reading where it has happened inspires us and, and breeds faith in our hearts to where we can say, oh, that I would see that in my life as well. That's what I would I would pray with somebody and see them to see visibly the response of receiving the forgiveness of God. We want that. Everybody wants that. A few years ago in Children's Church, we began taking a series, usually about two or three months out of the year, and devoting it to biographies and just studying men and, men and women of the faith. And this actually has become the funnest time for these kids. They love, and we've been doing biographies right now with the kids today. They're watching a little video about John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Spent 12 years in jail and wrote, in jail, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And also The Holy War, which is another outstanding book. Allegorical book. The reason we do this is because, one, I desire for God to just prick something in their hearts to where possibly even in our church we would have somebody to go to a foreign land and give their lives for the sake of the gospel and the church. So we want to do it that way, but what I've found is that it gets the kids' eyes off of themselves and teach them to look on something greater than their own comfort and pleasure, than their own, well, I just want to go out and play. That's what it's fun. These... Biographies, I think uh, I, I made a list. This was kind of fun. I made a list of, because I lost several of the biographies. I've been re- trying to replace them. I lost them in the flood. And I'm making a list of all the biographies that I've read. And as I put a name down, I'd remember specific stories about each one. And as I was doing that, those stories just began. I remember the, the effect of reading those and thinking, wow, this, this is 
Again, I'm, I'm experiencing this all over again. I've, I mean, I've read some that have been like this, and those are, are really cool. The autobiographies are the best, especially from the autobiographies of the people that they don't think they should be writing an autobiography, i.e. John Patton as well as John Newton, the pastor of the late 1700s in England. He is the one that uh, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace that all of us have cherished for years. See, he didn't want to write, write a biography. Everybody around him was saying, you need to write your story, you need to write your story. He was a s- slave ship captain. For around six years. You read that, okay, what what caused you to write the song Amazing Grace? And you find that as you read these things. They are tremendous. But as as I was going through, uh, again, all of them just kept coming back. We, this spring, read with the girls. I was reading a book. and Some of them have been this thick. Some have been little kid books. So don't don't make me over-spiritual. I didn't read a whole bunch of these. I've read about 20 of these, and half of them have been these little short sixth-grade type books. And those are great, because you still get the same story and still effect. We actually read one of those uh, with the girls. We read the story of George Mueller, who uh, had an orphanage in Bristol, England. He actually cared, in in the lifetime of the orphanage, he cared for over 10,000 orphans, boys and girls. So as we're reading this, it happened a couple times. I'm reading, and I'm weeping because of this story. It's the effect of, of faith. A lady came. She uh, was a seamstress, and she gave 400 pounds to George Mueller's orphanage. And he knew, you're a seamstress. It would have taken you 12 years to come up. Actually, it was 100 pounds. She inherited 400 pounds, gave 100 to, he found this out afterwards, gave 100 to the orphanage, and he went back to her, actually try to give it back. Here, you need to take this back. I, you, it would have taken her 12 years to get 100 pounds. She said, no, 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 my father inherited money. I paid off his debt. I gave 100 to you. I paid off his debt with 200. And then I gave, actually, I have 100 left over. Here, Mr. Miller, take the other 100. I'm weeping. I'm weeping. The girls are looking at me. Daddy, what's wrong? And we get to the conclusion, and they could hear it in my voice. (laughs) It was coming. It was close. So Lane says, Daddy, you're going to cry. So probably so. I feel that it's coming, it's close, sure enough, before I finish the chapter, I'm in tears. Just the effect of the gospel. I've seen this effect, because the other children's church teachers, they, they get excited as well. Because um, it has an effect. Typically, if you get a book recommendation from me, it's for a biography. Because they've been so impactful. In Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now John's reading, uh, writing prophetically as well with just the martyrdom era. I think from his own experience of what he saw, but also prophetically, the martyrs are conquering Satan by the word of Christ, by the blood of the Lamb, by the testimony, because they love not their own lives. That's what you find with biographies. You find men and women that they didn't love their own lives. And when we read that, we're reading testimony that provokes us toward and stirs us up toward love and good deeds. The common thread that's run throughout just the different biographies that I've read has been the joy of sacrificial serving that these men and women had in God alone. They loved God more than their own lives and they conquered in the spirit realm. Reading their testimony equips us for a life of sacrifice. They lived a single passion to glorify God with the whole of their lives. They demonstrated the life of Jesus' obedience and sacrifice. They were following Him. They displayed the forsaking 
of the comfort and safety of, of many times rich lives, many times, most times, stable lives, in order to bring the good news to a lost and dying world. And they did not live for themselves. They lived for the purpose of the glory of God being displayed in the entire world. And here's the greatest thing. They didn't stop until they died. They provide us with vivid pictures of Scripture, of what it means to forsake the world, and live upon a God who is invisible. You know, it's fun when you read these stories, Scriptures come alive. You're finding Scripture application. Oh, that's, that's that Scripture. These men and women knew their God deeply, and they prompted, that prompted them to go and be sustain, sustain them also to stay no matter what the natural assessment of fruitfulness was. There were many biographies that I've read where there was very, very, very little natural assessment of fruitfulness. But afterwards, when that person died, then was a flood of fruitfulness that came in. But in their own lives, they persevered knowing they were living for the eternal impact that it would make. They operated in the power of the Spirit and didn't back down to any man. They were bold for the glory of God. There was one, Gladys Alward was a missionary to China. And she was a very short lady. She was running an inn where uh, people, travelers would come be able to stay at the inn. Well, she turned the inn into an orphanage at uh, one time at, when the Japanese came in to occupy China at the beginning of World War II. She actually fled and evacuated with a hundred of these orphanages. She had sent a hundred ahead. And she, by herself, is, has a hundred little kids that she's evacuating and getting on trains. They're in the soot, everything, to get to safety. Well, she was in this little village where her her orphanage was, and there was a riot in the prison. And and the... We call the guy who's in charge of the prison. The warden. The warden calls for Gladys Alward. Go get Gladys Alward. They knew the testimony that that she shared because she was bold about it. She comes. She has no idea what's going on. The warden wants you. What for? So she goes over there and and he tells her, we have a riot in the prison and you say that your God is all powerful. So I want you to go in there and stop the riot. She says at that point, she really didn't have the time to go into the doctrinal effect of what the man did and what she was saying. So she said, God be with me. She walks through the tunnel and she is scared, senseless. (laughs) She walks through the tunnel and sees a man running at her with an axe above his head. And she, this little woman, says, Stop right there! He stopped. She said, Put down your axe. He puts his axe down. She says, What are y'all... And she tells them all, one by one, systematically, Stop what you're doing. Stop it. And they listen. And they're there looking at her. She says, why are you doing this? They said, we're bored. <laughs> we don't have anything to do all day, so we just get on each other's nerves and we start beating each other up. So she went back to the warden. She said, they're bored. Give them, let them plant stuff. Let them work on stuff. She, she, she initiated prison reform in that prison. They would grow their own food from that time on. But there's a boldness there that when we hear that story, we go, I don't know what I would do in that situation. But I really wish I'd respond like her. Like her. They encountered much hostility and adversity, even death. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliot. He and his four friends went down to the Alka Indian tribe in Ecuador, desiring to bring the gospel to them. And they wrote, all of them were married. They wrote their wives, we do, We're doing this for the sake of the gospel. We feel compelled to go. We have to go. Our lives wouldn't be complete unless we go. And 
As you may know the story, they were speared to death after a couple days of what was seeming like going to be very good interaction and communication. They ambushed them and killed them. But in all of these stories, they endured for the sake of the gospel. They had a faith in the living God that I long for. I want that faith. They lived exciting lives for the grandest cause of all. God's cause for his kingdom to be, to be displayed on this earth through the gospel of his son. Biography frees us from self-consumption by getting our eyes off of ourselves with inspiring stories to live for the cause of the gospel. Biographies give wonderful examples of men and women who've loved the gospel more than their own lives. Their stories breed faith and confidence toward the living God. And after we read them, we find ourselves wanting to love God and be committed to Christ all the more. Well, let me tell you the story about John Patton, and it is a compelling, remarkable story. He was born in Scotland in May 1824. He was the oldest of 11 children. He began, he was raised in a Christian home, Christian parents. He went uh, to be a missionary in Glasgow, Scotland, which we would term today urban missionary work. And he did that for um, about 10, 12 years. And then he feels the sense to bring the gospel overseas. And so of all the places in the world, he, God lays on his heart the, the New Hebrides Islands, which is today the present Vanuatu Islands. They did a survivor about it a few uh, on that island, those islands, about 80 islands in the South Pacific, not far from Australia. And this is where John Patton wants to go. He wants to go to the island of Tanna, which is home to several tribes that prided themselves on being cannibals. The first missionaries to the New Hebrides, which they arrived on the island of Aromanga, which is not far from, you can actually see Aromanga from Tanna. These two missionaries that arrived there were killed cooked and eaten while the ship that brought them was still in sight. This is where John Patton wanted to bring the gospel. Spent some time raising funds for his journey and he faced opposition. Listen to this account. There was a dear man, Mr. Dickinson, Dixon. Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was the cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. At last, I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and now your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm, I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's the kind of man John Patton was. There was a spiritual courage about him. It gets, it gets on us. It was all over his days through adversity that came from all different directions. He arrived on the island of Tan in November 1858. A few months later, in February 1859, his wife Mary gave birth to a son. And for a few days, they both did well. Then Mary began to, to have some difficulties, some sicknesses. And he recounts it this way. And then in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on the 3rd March. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy, whom we had named after her father, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me 
As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. Stunned by that dreadful loss and returning upon this field of labor to which the Lord had himself so evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time to almost give way. But I was never altogether forsaken. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. Loses his wife and his newborn son within months of land. His, his in-laws, when he told his in-laws, they never recovered from the news. They never forgave him and they ended up dying because of the depression that was on their own life, their own lives. But here's a man after this opposition says, no, God led me here. Here I will stay. He stayed on the island amidst much painful loss, being convinced about something about the greatness of God. His courage was indeed supernatural. On the island of Tana, he lived in uncertainty with the ones that one day would promise security to him. And the next, the very next day, declared death and cannibalism over him. They would say, we will kill you now and eat you. But the next day they'd, okay, we'll protect you. But he never, John Patton never backed down. There was a, there's a story of, well, one, the, the clever thieves and ships of fire. These tribes people were stealing everything from his mission house. His mission house was close to the harbor, and they would just come in and steal everything. He knew they were taking it. He would ask them, did you take this? And they would say no. They would deny it. And so then one of the tribes people comes in and says, Missy Patton, there's a ship of fire out there. And what they called the ship of fire was the British man of wars, the battleships of that day. And so they would say ships of fire because when they shoot the cannons, fire would come out. So that's where that name came from. And they were all nervous because, one, they feared the white man tremendously in one sense because uh, traders that came there were absolutely miserable. They brought diseases intentionally. They would sell them off into slavery. They would give them guns to kill themselves. It was horrible what the white man did there. But here, they're stealing everything. Ships of fire come. And he says, oh, well, uh, you know, when the captain gets off, he's going to ask how you all have been behaving. And I'm going to have to tell him that you've been bad. Because there are things in my tent, in my house, that are missing. And you all don't know where they are. And you need to know where they are. They said, we'll get everything. Just please don't, please don't tell him that we're bad. He says, well, and he's getting dressed in all of his fine attire to meet the captain of the ship who was coming. And they ran out within moments. Everything was replaced in the house. There was one time where he was preaching. Uh, he would preach every Sabbath day. And he would try, he just from whatever tribes people would gather and come around. And one day, three sacred men, they had a sacred man typically in every tribe. And that, he was basically the witch doctor. The sacred man, these three sacred men were at this one Sabbath preaching day and they stood up in the middle of his preaching and they said, we don't believe that your Jehovah God is the all powerful God and we can prove it because we have the power of Nahak over you. And the power of Nahak was witchcraft, sorcery, and it's a belief that they could take if, if a sacred man got even a scrap of food that you had, that a person had eaten off of and they got that scrap of food, they claimed that they could now kill you because they had something of you in their power. It made for a very, very clean island. Nobody left any trash around. If, if it was a banana peel or a, a core of some fruit, nothing. They left nothing around. Well, he takes their challenge. John Patton says, okay. He looks over, there's a lady sitting right here and she's got three of the native fruits, which is like our plum. Takes three, she, she says, may I have three of your fruits? She said, oh, here, help yourself. 
So he takes three of those, and these three sacred men, he asks to come stand by him. And he takes a bite out of one, gives it to one sacred man, a bite out of the other, gives it to the second, a bite out of the third, and gives it to the third. And he says to everybody that's sitting there, and everybody's terrified because they know exactly what he's doing. Of course, they think he's going to die. And so he says, you've seen what I've just done. I've given these three men. They've said their God is more powerful than my God. I will ask them right now, kill me by Nahak. And he went and sat down and waited for them. Now, even at that point, some surprised people ran off because they just knew he was going to die. So they thought. And he's there, and he's waiting. And they're, they're, doing, they're, lighting these, they're lighting on fire and stuff like that and doing all this kind of stuff. And they're looking at him as if, you're going to drop dead now. You're going to drop dead now. And he's just sitting there. And he actually says to them, come on, be quick. I'm still very well. You, you, come on, rouse up your gods. Do something. What's that remind you of? Elijah. Elijah. Scripture comes alive. So he's telling them, he's t- taking their challenges. So the three of them say, well, we need all the sacred men from the whole island to come together in order to kill you. He says, fine, but here's what you're going to do. Next, you can't kill me by spear, by musket, or by club. You have to kill me by Nahak. And next Sabbath, you're going to come. And if I'm not here, your God's powerful. But you have to come and say that Jehovah God is most powerful. Week goes by and he would have tribes people pass in his house during the week just to see if he was dead or not. <laughs> he gets to the next Sabbath, sits down. The three sacred men come. And as asked, they said, Missy Patton too is a sacred man and his God is more powerful than our gods. And two of them, he invited them, please come sit, listen. Two of those sacred men came down, sat with him and listened to his preaching. And became very, very good friends in the fickleness of who they were. They became friends to him. But the other, the third one, he actually ran off and got a knife to kill him. He said, no, 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 no. I said, by Nahak, you can't kill me that way. The man followed him. He got a spear and followed him around for a few days, ready. Would jump out in the trail, ready to spear him right through the heart. It was just the two of them. Nobody would know about it. And God kept that man from throwing that spear into John Patton. Walked around with a loaded, a guy followed him with a loaded musket for days. And he would interact with them. Good morning. How are you today? That was a courage about this guy. This was fun. He had a little dog named Clutha, a little Scottish terrier. And the dog would save his life because he'd be sleeping. And when somebody would come with a spear, he'd wake up. And he said, he wrote this, God gave them this supernatural fear of Clutha. This little bitty Scottish terrier that he brought with him from Scotland. As his courage and deliverances increased, he would throw himself in the middle of warring tribes. Throw himself there. Going amongst them every day, I did my utmost to stop hostilities, setting the evils of war before them and pleading with the leading men to renounce it. He was eventually run off, physically run off the island of Tana, with very, very little fruit being evident in the natural. He went back to Scotland, where he married again, and then to Australia to, mar- to raise more money and awareness, and then went to labor on the island of Aniwa, which is one of the smaller islands in the New Hebrides, he actually lost two more children on that island with his new wife. He said on the island, he claimed the island of Aniwa for Jesus. And he actually dug a well, and he, and he said the digging of a well broke the back of dark religion on the island of Aniwa. As he was trying to convince the chief there, we need to dig a well to get fresh water. And he says, you're crazy. When you dig a well, you're going to get everything that is around this island. It's all salt. We can't drink it. We've all tried. And they collected their water by rain. And so it would have to rain. And so the chief would say, you're crazy. You're saying you can get rain to come out of the ground? 
that's not going to happen. So he says, well, okay. He actually got some people to come help him, and he started digging the well, and it caved in. So the other guys that came to help him freaked out because they thought he was cursed. And so they went off, so he had to dig the well again. And then he did it. He, 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 Dug it at first too narrow. He made a little cone coming down, and he knew he was getting soft, and there was, there was something down there. So the next day, he knew he was going to hit that water, so he invited the chief to come and everybody in the tribe to come. Goes down there, and this is faith of this man. He was praying the whole time. God, may this be fresh. <laughs> Takes a sip. It was fresh water. He passes a cup up to the chief. The chief drinks it and says, y'all, I don't know if he said y'all, Sounded something that we wouldn't even know what he said. He said, Missy Patton has made rain come from the ground. And at the time when John Patton wrote the second volume, it was still the only freshwater well on the island. All the other ones they tried to, to try to dig were uh, salt water. And the whole island, subsequently the entire island, it's saved and lives for Jesus. So he saw some wonderful fruit there. He eventually died in 1907, a courageous, long life, and well worth all of it for the gospel. Well, what is the source of John Patton's courage? I think I've drawn awareness to two of the reasons of the source of his courage, though there are many as you read it, but I think two cover it well for us. His courage came from a unique awareness and experience of the sovereignty and presence of God. When he was being run off Tana, he actually spent part of a night in a tree, a big, huge chestnut tree. And one of the people, one of the tribesmen, Noar, who actually became his most trusted friend of all the fickleness that they were, he tells him, go spend the night in the tree when everything calms down, because now all the tribes of the island of Tana want to get him and eat him. They said, they told him, we're going to chop your body up, we're going to send it all around the islands, and every tribe is going to be able to feast on your flesh. So he's literally running, he's running for his life, goes, and he trusts this guy to go up in the tree. Eventually he was led to go out to the harbor to get in a canoe in the middle of the night and go. But listen to his experience while he was in that tree. Being entirely at mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet, I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Scripture comes alive. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. In the presence of my enemies, he sets a table for me. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. This was a man that knew the presence of God. He, in with that, knew the sovereignty of God. Knew, and many times, knew that God preserved his life. And he, he was not a man that thrust himself into... Uh, he actually, when he left Tana, he was actually criticized for not dying there. They thought he was not as spiritual as he could have been because he didn't die there. But he had a spiritual courage and said, no, 
actually said I'm a Calvinist, but I'm not a fatalist. Believe God's control over everything, but sometimes God has you run. That's what God had him do. But there was such an effect of the presence of God and his sovereignty in all things, whether over life or death. He wasn't afraid to die and faced it many times. Because of his fellowship with the Lord, he endured and he had courage. The second thing, second reason, the second source of his courage is that it came from his father. Quite simply, it came from his daddy. In their house, they had a little room that separated. It was in between two other rooms. And in that room was just big enough for a bed, a chair, and a desk. And that was what they called the closet of the house. But in that closet, their father, his father, would go usually after every meal. Sometimes, he says, all day long. And he would pray and pour out his soul to God. They learned, the kids even learned to tiptoe. They wouldn't even talk about what they knew their daddy was doing because they knew it was too sacred to even put in words. And they would tiptoe past the door to not disturb the holy interaction that was going on. Listen to what he says. The outside world might not know, but we knew. Whence came that happy light as of a newborn smile that always was dawning on my father's face. It was a reflection of the divine presence. In the consciousness of which he lived... Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? I wonder if he was in that tree, remembering his father. His father prayed. His father disciplined them with love. He says of their interaction when there was time when his father had to discipline them and and bring a punishment, he would go into that closet and pray. And John Patton said that was the worst thing of all because he knew exactly, we knew what he was doing. He was laying the whole matter before God and that was the toughest thing to bear. We loved him all the more when we saw how much it cost him to punish us. And in truth, he had never very much of that kind of work to do upon any one of all the eleven. We were ruled by love far more than by fear. Did you catch that? This man loved God so much visibly that his children obeyed because they saw how much he loved God, not because of the threat of a spanking. I want to be a daddy like that. Listen to how he prayed. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When, on his knees and all of us around him in family worship, he poured out his soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. John Patton, and the courage that he had, was learned by hearing his daddy pray. 
He learned to have Jesus as his own friend because his daddy prayed and he heard it. John Patton's father was a consistent man. He was consistent all of his days. In 40 years, he missed church twice. Once for a snowstorm, once for a rainstorm. And he was livid because he couldn't get to church. Twice. And sometimes his wife couldn't go and he would come because she had all the babies at home. He would come. And and John Patton describes when he would begin to display and, and really preach the sermon over again to his wife... All the kids would gather around and hear him, and it was it. And John Patton had just heard the sermon, came home, his daddy's doing it again to his mom, and he's saying, he's feeling the presence of God all over again. The picture of this man is it's wonderful. He always had his family devotional time. Always. Then there was a farewell. A true demonstration of deep love. As John Patton was going to Glasgow to start his urban missionary work, this is actually the last time he saw his dad. He would write back and forth, but his dad ended up dying before he got to see him again, the side of eternity. And he walked, his father walked within the first six miles of the 40-mile journey they had to walk to Glasgow. And there was a little levee right there, and they would both run up. Um, that Well, John Patton ran up on the levee because he just couldn't take the parting embrace. He actually, John Patton's father held his hand for a long while. And then he said, bless you, my son. And may the God that you serve bless you. They embrace. They're both weeping. They're walking away from one another and they can't take it anymore. John Patton can't take it anymore. So he goes and he climbs his little dike to look to see his father. He just wanted to see his daddy there. And his dad did the same thing. But his dad didn't see him looking back at him. And he turned around and began to walk off. And John Patton sat there through tears. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. Fathers, don't we want that? Fathers, are you living toward a legacy of the gospel for your children? Are you living a life with a single great passion? A life where it's a life that you know is but a vapor. It's it's as, as quick as a warm breath on a cold day. Gone. Here, then gone. And thinking about that's our life, it's here and gone. And the time we have with our children is all the more shortened. Just to, what, 18 years? Of, of being the foundational authority and building them up to when they walk off, they have as their common refrain. Dad and mom serve God. Why not me? But we have to take advantage and live the life that God has given us to live. We have to live it with a single passion. The single passion means there's a forsaking element. There's a forsaking the world. There's a losing of a life. There's not so much striving towards self-consumption, but there's a throwing off of those things to say, no, I have a single passion. And it's a great passion. It overarches everything and it calls for radical living. Fathers, I want to challenge you with this. What you might be calling a hobby might be the very thing that is causing a spiritual wedge to be placed in your son or daughter to where they may not know who God is. 
because of the consumption with a hobby. Is the hobby wrong? No, but worshiping it, yes. And we're very creative with the little hobbies that we can have. We're very creative with our time that we're supposed to get. No, a a life with a single great passion has as its undertone sacrificial love. Laying down your life for your children. It's not, it's not a passion to provide temporally. It's not a passion to say, well, I'm going to provide my children with what I have. Yes, do that as God gives you grace to do that. But go beyond that to say, no, I'm going to give the gospel to my children. To where they will live an inspired, radical, courageous life for God. But it starts with the life that we will live. John 12:24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The kingdom of God advances through sacrifice. Are you living a sacrificial life? Are you living toward the gospel? Can your children say, Daddy loves God more than anything else in his life? We see it. We hear it, and we want to be like our daddy. Let's stand up together. Keith's going to come up and pray for us as fathers. Can I get everybody to sit down except the fathers? You got to stretch. but uh, I don't know that that there has been a greater challenge in life than being a father. Biographies, as Jeff mentioned, um, are inspiring. The thought of them are also torturous as I contemplate What would be said about me? What would my children write about me? I'd like to think that they would say some of the things that were said by John Patton about his father. And I'm sure he was not a perfect father. I'm sure he had many moments where he would wonder what his children would say about him. But I I feel the weight, as I'm sure you do as well, feel the weight of what I would like for them to write at the end of our journey together and what I feel I deserve to have written at the end of our journey together. And there's sobering moments to come to where we stop and reassess our role and how we are doing and fulfilling it.
And these moments are needed. Fatherhood is like sand slipping through our fingers, isn't it? You wish you could squeeze harder and slow up the time passage. It just doesn't work that way. It seems only to squeeze through your fingers more quickly and efficiently the harder you try and hold on to it. And so today I want to pray for us that we would be fathers who would inspire our children to become people like a John Patton. That the legacy of our lives would be that we have raised children who found the gospel to be cool. To found joy in the kingdom of God to be the most important thing in their lives. To be enamored with eternal realities. And not to be lost amongst the world's trinkets. But I would want us, I want to read this passage. I had a sense of praying this way this morning during the prayer time before the service. I believe this is actually a word. I believe it's a word for fathers. I pray this is a word for all of us as fathers, that, that what God would do in us today would be represented in this passage. It's a familiar passage from Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. And I think these bones represent for some of us what fatherhood becomes in our own lives. Dry bones. Not living realities. Not walking, life-giving, animated activity of a father. But dry bones. What we know we probably should be, but what we potentially are not. And we need what this passage contains in it. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. That's an interesting posture to be in, especially for those of you who are older fathers, those of you who your prime time role of being a father, uh, you're kind of past it. Or for those that kind of feel like, I've missed the best years of being a father. And you might be asking the question, as you think about uh, my life has been dry, the category of being a father to my children effectively and living that way toward them. And I, I feel like dry bones, and I feel like I could ask that question right now. God, can, can these dry bones live? Can they have significance in the lives of my children at this point after so much has happened, after so much time has passed? Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Live, and you shall know that I am 
the Lord. And over and over again in passages like this, and in this particular chapter, the Lord says, and you will know that I am the Lord, and you will know that I am the Lord, and you will know that I am the Lord. There are times in which God does things that uniquely reach us, that convince us He is the Lord. And for the men who are standing here, I can't think of a category that's more ripe for you to be reached than for God to touch your influence as a father. And for that influence to be multiplied in your children. And for their lives to be shaped by that influence. I believe along with you that in that day, I will know He is the Lord. Having done that through our lives. Everybody in here, I'm sure, are familiar with your weaknesses. Familiar with your sin. Familiar with your selfishness. For the Lord to be able to raise up testimony in my children, I will know He is the Lord in my life. So I'd like to pray and I would like to ask for the Lord to do in us what this spirit of prophecy was in this passage. And if you would take up that place to let the, the prophetic power of God that is intended to dwell in us by the Spirit to be able to say to these bones receive the life of God once again receive a fresh impartation this morning of the Spirit of God for you to walk in this purpose dry as you may be let's pray together Lord, I thank you for these men. Lord, I stand with them this morning. Lord, and I know they feel the sense of urgency as a season of our lives that comes, and as Jeff said, like a vapor, it disappears before we were ready for it to be gone. That same time frame is crowded with so many things. Oh Lord, many things, many good things, many decent things, and plenty of opportunities for the wrong things. And Lord, we find ourselves, I find myself, in seasons where this passage describes dynamics of my life. And Lord, you could take me out into the valley of my life and I feel like there would be places in my life where there would be bones. Not life, not activity, not the dance of one animated by the life-giving Spirit of God but just worn out, broken humanity. Touch my sin. Dry even at that. But Lord, thank you. Resurrection God. God of hope. God who's never overwhelmed. God who never meets a situation too big. There is nothing too difficult for you. 
But thank you for moments of great redemption that come and they bring life exactly where we are. God, this morning, thank you for knowing the address of every one of us who are standing in this room. Some who are going to go home today to little babies who don't even yet speak. They hold in their arms. And many years lie ahead for them to live and to walk and to be animated and to not be dry bones in their children's lives. Lord, many right now are in years of intensity and struggle and difficulty with their children. Their children have come of age and there is challenge. And sometimes it's not rewarding. And there is a temptation to put down the mantle and to do other things that come easier and be with other people that are easier and to invest in things that are not as difficult. And Lord, there are some men here who their children no longer share the same address with them. Their contact now is a phone call, occasional visit. Yet you have called us all to this ministry of being fathers, the various shapes that we hold. God, today... I pray, Lord, and I stand before these men. I stand as one of them. But, Lord, I stand as their pastor as well. Lord, I stand with this verse. And I stand in the Spirit. And, God, I, I pray prophetically over these lives. Spirit of God, would you come breathe upon these lives? Would you come wrap these bones in flesh? Would you pick up these lives once again and give life to them, Lord? Lord, these bones cannot live unless you make them to live. But God, you have every intention that we would fulfill the plans that you have in our lives. And when you joined yourself to us and you made us fathers, you had intentions for us in how we would live, the influence we would have, the effect of lives well lived, counsel well given, life well modeled for our children to be affected. Lord, that day remains for everyone standing in this room that still has a child who calls him Father. Spirit of God, would you, would you pull us out of the day when we're okay with just being dry bones? No more, Lord. No more. This church no longer needs dry bones in the place of fathers. This community, this city, this nation no longer needs men who are really just a pile of dry bones. Who don't have a vision and don't have a passion and aren't willing to lay down their lives. So that that life can be taken up like a seed sown into the earth that dies and no longer abides alone, but that life is replicated over and over and over again. God, would you touch every one of these men? God, would you touch me and touch our lives? And in days ahead, God, would you give us the inspiration and the hope not to live within the confines of our failures and weaknesses, but to lay hold of the Spirit of God given to us, to animate us so that no matter how difficult the task Lord, we would run toward our role of parenting our children. 
the same way that John Patton ran toward an island where he knew what he would face would be adverse and potentially take his life. Lord, we once again give our lives to you. Take our lives. We willingly lose them again today for the sake of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Father's Day tomorrow.